What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. I have a lot of things that are pressing in on me. And if you listen to my radio program, you know that of late, I'm trying to find some solutions. And I'm willing to admit that a lot of the problems that I'm looking at, we created. We did this to ourselves. And we allowed a very nanny state government to push us around for long enough. And how do we get out of this mess? Because we're raising a whole bunch of young people to think that the mess is normal. And now they're beginning to find out, no, the mess isn't normal. And how come adults didn't prevent us from walking into some of these very dangerous traps? One of the things that have been talked about ad nauseum, and I certainly don't want to rehash it, is the subject of transitioning for transgendered people. Now, five years ago, I knew of exactly three transgendered people in my orbit. And they were at arm's length, to say the least. One was the child of one of my friends. I won't refer to them by a gender. Another was a person that I have known for a couple of years and always thought was a little bit odd. And uh, then they were able to begin a transition process. They're adults. And, uh, you know, I I fully accepted it. This was a person in their 40s a person who had lived a life as a man and had decided to transition to womanhood, but that was their choice. And I didn't see my life affected by it very much, so I never really said much about it. And then there was a third person that came into my orbit that I believed was entirely too young to be making a decision like this. The other two were adults. So I started to really think about it, and then my son's friend, Abigail Schreier, wrote a book about this sort of trend of teenage girls, particularly in certain pockets in certain communities, that all of a sudden had all decided that they were either non-binary or transgendered, terms that I had never heard teenagers really use. I'd heard it in adult conversation, but now it seemed to be everywhere on the internet and on the newspaper headlines. And so what became very clear to me was that there are trends and then there are things that I believe uh, surpass just a simple trend and become a social contagion. And when that happens, irreversible things start to take place, which will always have results. And one of the results is this whole new age or new wave of detransitioners, the people who regret making that change. And as more of these detransitioners come out publicly with their stories, we are now talking about what should we be doing when it comes to children and teenagers who identify as transgender. Of course, the most obvious ones are this Chloe Cole, who said that uh, she's going to sue the physicians and the 
therapists who allowed her to go through what she calls now physical mutilation prior to understanding what was going on. You know, it's pretty hard these days to escape a discussion about the transgender issue. Uh, Detransitioners, people who identified as transgender and went through social and medical transitions, then to decide to reverse course, are the latest group that they're saying we're deploying to work against people who are legitimately transgendered. And of course, the other side is learning the lesson that was articulated by Andrew Breitbart, politics is downstream from culture. Conservatives woke up and said, we're not going to buy Bud Light anymore. Target, all of these woke advertisements that came out are suspiciously grooming kids to think that transgender transitions is perfectly normal and that you can make a decision like that when you're 10. Every week, it seems another sport is contending with how do we accommodate transgender women? The outrage over drag shows is at a fever pitch. San Francisco named its first drag laureate. The Dodgers, the L.A. Dodgers, a baseball team, invited, then disinvited, then reinvited a drag performance troupe that satirizes Catholicism. The largest LGBTQ organization in America, the Human Rights Campaign, declared its first national state of emergency. And we're only halfway through Pride Month. A lot of people warn that if we continue to talk about these issues and raise questions about it, that it's dangerous and that children will suffer because as they begin to identify as transgendered, they're going to be poked fun of. And, you know, I don't know the number of American children who received an actual diagnosis of gender dysphoria this year, but I do know that the American Pediatric Association said that the number tripled between 2017 and 2021. The number of minors that are taking puberty blockers and hormones more than doubled in that same five-year period while the percentage of transgender adults has remained steady over time at 0.5%. And that's according to a 2022 study by the William Institute, which is a think tank that studies sexuality and gender identity in the law. The percentage of minors identifying a transgender is now triple that, 1.4%. And as more of the detransitioners come out publicly with their stories, The political fight over how to care for transgender-identified minors and whether a strictly affirming model is the right approach is going to intensify. Twenty Republican-led states have passed bans or restrictions on gender-affirming care for minors. Governor Abbott declared last year that helping a child medically transition is child abuse and could prompt a CPS, a Child Protective Services, investigation. Meanwhile, Democratic states are passing refuge laws to allow minors to travel to those states to get gender-affirming care like puberty blockers and hormones and surgeries. California is actually considering this legislation that would make affirming a child's gender weigh favorably in parental custody disputes, as well as another bill that would require foster parents to affirm a child's gender identity. 
They say the rise in youth identifying as transgender is the result of a more accepting society and that in the past, these children would have suffered in silence. Even questioning the efficacy of this care is called transphobic. Like everything in America, it's become polarized. The left has one point of view, and because the right is pushing back, the left doubles down and the right pushes harder. That's according to a psychotherapist who works with gender-questioning patients and detransitioners, Dr. Joseph Burgo. It shouldn't be a political decision. It should be about protecting children. What's best for them? Dr. Burgo supports bans on surgeries, puberty blockers, and hormones for minors, a decision he says he didn't come to lightly as a lifelong Democrat. As a vice director at GenSpec, an organization that advocates for a wider range of treatment options than just the affirmation model, Dr. Burgo is an outlier in his field, at least publicly. The American Academy of Pediatrics and the AMA support gender-affirming care for minors. The guidelines published by the World Professional Association for Transgender Care are considered by many practitioners to be the gold standard for transgender medical care and include the use of puberty blockers, hormones, and after the age of 16, double mastectomies. The biology in your brain that tells you what sex you are is part of sexual reproduction and is a phenomenon. The executive director of the Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, Dr. Safer, says, even if we didn't recognize it in the past, it's there. And for most people, it's coded the same way as the genitals that we saw when they were born. But for some people, it's not. And so gender-affirming care is simply recognizing all of that. Look, I don't pretend to know the medical treatment that would be appropriate, but I do know that certainly we ought to be questioning all of this transitioning that's taking place with minors because we don't let minors sign for their own appendectomies. And a guardian, a parent, has to sign for surgery. We don't let minors decide that they're going to get a tattoo in most states. They have to have an adult present. We don't allow minors to even pierce their ears at the mall without an adult signing a waiver. So why on earth would we not allow a parent to weigh in on a decision to surgically alter and perhaps even mutilate a young human being who is at best confused and at worst deluded? Most of the people who are calling for this transition-affirming care really don't have to talk to anybody who has gone through the process. This Chloe Cole says she's suffering from medical complications from her transition. She may be infertile. She's experienced sexual dysfunction because now she re-identifies as a woman. One of the potential side effects of taking puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones is the inability to orgasm. And that's according to the experts. Critics of medicalized gender care for minors point out that children who are not even sexually active are incapable of consenting to never having an orgasm. Bone density loss is another side effect of puberty blockers. Mrs. Cole doesn't blame her parents. She says they were duped as much as she was. They were told it's a life or death situation for their own daughter that if you don't allow your kid to transition, then she's going to kill herself, Mrs. Cole says. It's either you're going to have a dead daughter or a live son. 
Ms. Cole is now suing her health care provider, Kaiser Permanente, as well as her surgeon and other doctors. Dr. Burgo says lawsuits like this are going to become more common in the coming years and that he knows of several lawsuits in the planning stages now. The care decisions always rest with the patient and their parents, and in every case, we respect the patients and their families' informed decisions about their personal health. That's what Kaiser Permanente said. I think that, unfortunately, what's going to happen is we're just going to see more and more collateral damage as the detransitioners come forward, and there's going to be a lot of them. Maybe big settlement awards will prompt insurance carriers and doctors to rethink the gender-affirming model for youth. Now, as heartbreaking as Miss Cole's story is, the question is whether hers is an isolated one from a rare cohort of child detransitioners, or whether she is a harbinger of things to come. How common are detransitioners? And are a few high-profile ones like Miss Cole hijacking the debate, hurting other transgender children by sowing seeds of doubt about their medical care and pushing for outright bans on it? There are no large-scale, long-term studies that track persons who medically transitioned as minors to determine how many reverse course as they aged into adulthood. The studies that do exist show wide ranges for detransition, from as low as 2% to as high as 25%. The discrepancy in the data underscores the shortcomings of these studies and the fact that many researchers and medical providers in the field have been unwilling to talk about or study detransition because it may be seen as harmful to transgender medical care. Well, let me tell you something. This is an entire generation that we have experimented or allowed experiments to be conducted on. And I oppose that at all times. Young people are not supposed to be making life-altering, permanent changes to anything without parental advisement and consent. And the fact that doctors are terrorizing parents into thinking that if they don't go along with this gender-affirming model, that they will be responsible for the death of their child. It's absolutely unheard of. At no point in time has the medical profession ever displayed such amazing disregard for parental rights. And we see it happening at every level whether it's at a school board meeting where parents are being called terrorists for questioning the content of material that their children are being exposed to at very early ages, or this whole transitioning project that has been undertaken with an entire group of young people who really, in my opinion, have been victimized by this social contagion. And we're too afraid to stand up to it. Shame on us. That's all I'm going to say. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, 
Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Shame on us. I also was thinking, you know, uh, Juneteenth is this holiday, a federal holiday. I think it's a great holiday. I think people should be made aware of just how long it took for the word that you're free to get to the slaves that were in Texas. And Juneteenth is a celebration of the day they were finally notified of their freedom. But now, of course, we talk about things like reparations. And I read a great piece by one of my heroes, Shelby Steele, that reparations are no more than a dream of privilege and that black Americans have tragically turned our focus from rights and laws to identity politics and victimization. Because if you just use logic, the only measure of truth in matters of race, reparations for black Americans would make perfect sense. They endured four centuries of an especially mean and degrading persecution. Slavery and the regime of segregation that followed it was dawn to dusk, cradle to grave oppression. The only argument against reparations would be that no contemporary offer of reparation could ever be sufficient compensation. But since the 1960s, blacks have been all but overwhelmed with social programs and policies that seek to reparate them. Didn't the 1964 Civil Rights Act launch an era of reparation in America? This is Shelby Steele talking, not me. And didn't that era continue with President Lyndon B. Johnson's great society and war on poverty to sweeping excursions into social engineering that he hoped would end poverty in our time? Then there was school busing for integration, free public housing, racial preferences in college admissions, affirmative action in employment, increasingly generous welfare payouts, and so on and so on. And more recently, in American institutions of every kind, there has been emerging a new woke language of big but no cattle words like equity and inclusion, intersectionality, triggers, affinity spaces, allies, and of course, the all-purpose diversity, today both a mandate and a brand. America has had some 60 years of what might be called reparational social reform, reform meant to uplift not only the poor, but especially those like black Americans whose poverty meets the bar of historical grievance. Today we can see what we couldn't in the 60s, that this vast array of government programs has failed to lift black Americans to anything like parity with whites. By almost every important measure, educational achievement, out-of-wedlock births, home ownership, divorce rates, blacks are on the losing end of racial disparities. The reparational model of reform in which government and institutions try to uplift the formerly oppressed has failed. But why such immense failure in a post-60s America that has only grown more repentant of its racist past? The answer, I think, is that the great society was profoundly disingenuous. It was a collection of reparational reforms meant to show an America finally delivered from the tarnish of its long indulgence in racism. The great society was a gigantic virtue signal. It was moral advertising when the times called for the hard work of adapting a long-oppressed people to the demands of the modern world. 
but an even greater barrier to black development turned out to be freedom itself. In the mid-60s, when the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King were staples on the evening news, we black Americans, this is Shelby Steele talking, stepped into a vastly greater freedom than anything we had ever known. King's rhetoric, Great God Almighty, we're free at last, portrayed freedom as heaven. But freedom also had to have been scary. Oppression had conditioned us to suppress our humanity, to settle ourselves into a permanent subjugation, not the best preparation for a full life in freedom. I believe it was this collision with freedom, its intimidating burden of responsibility, its terror of the unknown, its risk of humiliation that pressured black Americans, especially the young, into a terrible mistake. In segregation, we had longed for a freedom grounded in democratic principles. In the 60s, we won that point. But then suddenly, with the ink still wet on the Civil Rights Act, a new voice of protest exploded onto the scene, a voice of race and color and atavistic longing black power. To accommodate, we shifted the overriding focus of racial protest in America from rights and laws to identity. Today, racial preferences are used everywhere in American life. Identity is celebrated almost as profusely as freedom once was. It all follows a simple formula. Add a history of victimization to the identity of any group, and you will have created entitlement. Today's black identity is a victim-focused identity designed to entitle blacks to American life. But the terms of this identity which Shelby Steele says blacks might be called citizen victims or citizens with privileges. The obvious problem with this is that it baits us into a life of chasing down privileges like affirmative action. In broader America, this only makes us sufferers for want of privileges. Reparation can never be more than a dream of privilege. Now, when Shelby Steele has discussions like that, or Tim Scott pushes back on Barack Obama's version of his run for the presidency as a black conservative Republican, we begin to see just how awful we have become at deciding what it is that being an American is all about, which leads me to citizenship. Because I think all of the things I'm talking about, whether it's transitioning, social contagion, whether it's racism and reparations, it all has to do with how we tend to think of citizenship as merely learning about a country's institutions and how the nation is governed. That's just not enough. Children should be fired with patriotism and instructed in the duties of citizenship. In previous eras, the study of citizenship fostered the ability to discriminate between a man's actions as right or wrong and inspired ideas of what makes a person a valuable citizen. In particular, citizenship was also referred to in schools as everyday morals and was specifically concerned with character and moral development. And with that goal, then, of developing character, the key components that are utilized for a study of citizenship include two texts, Ourselves and Our Souls and Bodies. And Charlotte Mason put together these selections from Plutarch's Lives. And it was written in 1904 for the express purpose of use by students in schools that were studying 
citizenship. We don't even teach citizenship anymore. We've got an entire generation, including one that's serving in Congress right now, who could not name the three branches of government, didn't know they were branches of government. That should scare you. It scared me when AOC couldn't define that there were three branches of government. We're in a terrible condition right now. We're politically divided, culturally divided, more divided racially and sexually and uh, faith-wise than we've ever been in my lifetime. And for all our efforts to repair the damages that were done in the past, we have escalated the damages that are being done on a daily basis. And we have endangered this nation and its citizens in a way that I never dreamed possible. We have to stop being afraid to talk about these issues. We have to engage in civil debate about everything. There should be nothing off the table. I remember for a period of time, people said that you should never discuss politics and religion because they were so fraught with ideas that people might disagree with. And by not discussing and debating those things, we have camped ourselves. There's this side and that side, the left and the right, the liberal, the conservative. And instead of ever coming to a place where we can agree to disagree, we begin this process of demeaning and diminishing the other side of our fellow countrymen. I think we're all guilty of it too. I'm not sitting here holier than thou telling you that talk radio for the last 33 years that I've been involved in it is very polarizing because one side has to believe they're right and the other side has to believe they're wrong for there to be a viable political system. And the fact that we no longer have any kind of discourse with one side with the other is not a good sign for the future of this country because a house divided cannot stand. That's not just biblical or scriptural, that's just true. If we don't find a way to communicate with one another and to accept the fact that we are a country that is comprised of many different people from many different places with many different faiths and many different ideas, if we don't decide that that's not a bad thing, that it's actually a good thing, and we can harmonize rather than demonize the different groups that we may not be affiliated with, we're doomed because we have entire generations that don't feel like this country is worth saving, that want to tear down everything that's good about this country along with everything that might be bad about this country. There's no sense of racial pride when you decide that your race is better or worse than another race. That's not pride, that's arrogance, and it has nothing to do with reality because Basically, what unites this country is not our differences, but it's our similarities. And our similarities are all enumerated in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. We all crave freedom, freedom to speak, freedom to worship, freedom to assemble, freedom to redress our grievances with the government that we placed in charge of the country. When we see these freedoms, being nibbled away at and sometimes actually just yanked from us, we are naturally going to become very territorial 
And I think what you've seen is that we've retreated into these comfortable camps where we only talk to people that believe the same things we do, and we've got a whole other half of the country that's doing exactly the same thing, refusing to talk to us, refusing to listen to us. It's breaking apart families. It's breaking apart communities. It's really the most dangerous force that I've ever seen unleashed on America. And the problem is that we have now proven to the people who lead this country on both sides of the aisle, they're both guilty, that we will obey their commands if they scare us enough. So obviously, I'm pretty uh, disturbed at what's going on, but that's okay, because first you have to acknowledge the problem before you can set about to fix it. And I think I've figured out the problem. We are lost, and we need a map. Not only do we need a map, but we need someone with the courage to lead. Recommend this podcast to other people, and don't forget, you'll be a new one coming out soon. Talk to you then. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.